As I mentioned last week, this morning we are uh, beginning a new series. Uh, we're going to take a deep dive into uh, one of the Apostle John's writings. We're going to take a look at First John. Uh, there are five um, books that are ascribed to um, the writings of the Apostle John. He wrote uh, the Gospel of John. He wrote First, Second, and Third John, and he wrote the Book of Revelation. And um, uh, it's always interesting to see just the consistency of of, of John's heart. Um, uh, come out in those writings as the Spirit uh, directed him. But this morning, we're going to take a deep dive into this first epistle. And um, uh, as I oftentimes say, to help us kind of understand uh, the text that we're going to be looking at, especially because we'll be spending the next number of weeks there, uh, it's really helpful for us to kind of get an idea of what the context is, right? Why was this book written? To, to whom was this book written, right? Who is the author of the book? What's his story? I think all of those things, like any kind of a writing, if we want to kind of get the most out of it, it's best for us to understand the context, right? When we don't understand, when we don't know the context, it opens the door to misunderstanding, which is oftentimes what happens. Um, and, and so the scripture was given to us and preserved by God um, in the context in which it's written. And so it's always important. That's why I like expository preaching. We gotta look at it line by line and we allow the context to communicate the intent that God laid out for us and preserved um, for us. And so every letter, every sermon um, that we see in the scriptures, um, there is a purpose in mind. I, I mention that because some say that um, the book of Hebrews was actually not a letter so much as a, as a sermon. Um, interestingly, the same is said about 1 John. First uh, John's epistle um, uh, doesn't carry with it the, uh, the same characteristics of a letter uh, that all of the others do. There is not a specific audience that is addressed. There is not an author that identifies himself. There's not a, a salutation or a greeting, all of those things that are consistent with a letter. Um, and so some had suggested that perhaps what we have here in First John is a sermon. Um, in the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. What we have is, is something that's been preserved by God for us as, as authoritative. And ultimately, what, this, what we have is what the Holy Spirit Spirit inspired the writers, uh, the, the, the text that the, that the Holy Spirit inspired, right? And when we talk about divine inspiration, I just, I just want to say it's kind of important for under, under, us to understand that divine inspiration has to do not with the author, but the text. God does not inspire the authors. It wasn't like they were possessed and, and, and then all of a sudden they began to create this text. Not every, listen, not everything that John wrote was inspired. Everything we have in those five writings I mentioned to you is written, but those aren't the only letters that John wrote. Paul wrote other things as well. God did not inspire the authors. God, it, using the personality uh, and the gifting of those people, presented through them an inspired text. And that's really important for us to understand because 
What, that, that's the reason why um, what they wrote back then is equally uh, important and informative and instructive as today. That's why we say that the, word, that the scripture says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword because the word is inspired by God. Just as a, you know, a trivia thing, so not all the authors knew that what they were writing was inspired text. Um, Paul, obviously, when writing to Timothy, knew that he was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, but, but there's nothing to suggest that all the authors, every time we have these texts, knew that what they were writing was going to be inspired text that was um, gonna be held up as the word of God for uh, this whole church age. Just a, just a side note, just something to kind of get you thinking about over, um, over a bagel. Um, John, John, and I highlight that because here's the reality. I think that we need to understand that, that what we have in the word of God is not just a bunch of thoughts in a religious book that sounds good. The reality of it is, it is authoritative. It has been given and preserved by God. And the reality of it is that, it, that, that there's a reason why it has been preserved throughout the centuries, right? There, there have been people that have set their lives to try to disprove what the word of God says, but they have found, they, they, they found the, the futility of that because God has always preserved his word. And so it is instructive. It tells us everything we need to know about God, about man, about God's plan of salvation. And so... Um, it's so much more than just a, a book that ought to you know, inform our, um, our belief system. It ought to dictate our, our belief system. Our, our opinions need to uh, come from the word of God and, and, um, because it is authoritative. And so, um, and so when John is writing this letter, he, he writes with intent. There's a, there's a purpose uh, behind this letter. He's writing it ultimately to the churches in, in Asia Minor, and, and the churches in Asia Minor were facing the, the difficult effects of heresy at this time. Um, heresy is false teaching that, that would lead people, right, uh, that, uh, astray that is not consistent with the gospel, right? Uh, false teaching that was begin this, there's a false teaching that was beginning to spread uh, throughout the church. In fact, John will, will point out that the acceptance of this false teaching only revealed that those who embraced this false teaching never truly embraced the truth of God's word in the first place. You see, truth will always do that. Truth will either define who is a believer or will define who is not a believer. It exposes, that's what truth does. And what John is saying in this text and what we'll see all throughout is John is using, John, John is pointing out the fact that, that truth will expose and there's some who, who, who the truth exposed that they were not a part of the faith at all. We'll read about that in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. Speaking of that group of people, he says this, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. He says, look, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. And so what we see there is that truth defines who a believer is as well as who a believer is not. And John says the fact that they did not, they do not hold to the truth shows that they were never with us from the beginning. The lie that was beginning to spread throughout the church like a cancer 
was calling into question whether or not Jesus was truly God or was he merely just a man. It's very important for us to, because here's the reality, that is still a debate in our world today. Right, there's still a desire to disprove who Jesus is. They'll say, well, he was a good man, he was a, he was a prophet, he was a rabbi, he was you know, a great, you know, he's a great teacher, he's a, he's a miracle worker, but nobody you know, in our world today, there's not that acceptance to the fact that he is very God of very God as the scripture declares him to be. And so the lie that was circulating then is the same lie that continues to circulate in our, in our age today. Now, based on the dating of, of this epistle, it was likely that uh, the beginning teachings of something that was called Gnosticism. That was the issue that, that, that John was uh, dealing with in that day. That was going on in the churches of Asia Minor. And this letter is to combat the teachings of Gnosticism. So what was that? Gnosticism was a blending of Eastern mysticism and Greek dualism. Listen, let me just say this. Anytime you blend error with truth, you have 100% error. 50% truth and 50% error doesn't make it a half truth. It makes it a whole truth. A, a whole error, excuse me. <laughs> That's why you got to check me out. 50% truth and 50% error makes it 100% error. And what was going on here is there is a blending of Eastern mysticism and Greek dualism, which taught that, listen, here's what they taught. Everything that was spiritual was good. If it had to do with anything mystical or spiritual, it had to be good. And anything that was physical or anything that was of, like had, had matter to it, that was evil. That was what Gnosticism, what one of the proponents of the teachings of Gnosticism was. So the thinking was that if Jesus is physical and everything that is physical is evil, how in the world can he possibly be God? And so this was, the, this was causing, this was creating a stir within the church. And so John was dealing with the, the undermining of the deity of Christ, his, his dual nature. Jesus was 100% man, and 100% God. And at no time did his humanity diminish his deity, and his deity did not diminish his humanity. He was not 50% man and 50% God. He was 100% man and 100% God. You say, Pastor, how can that be? It just is. It is the very essence of who he is. He was 100% God, 100% man, and at no point did one nature diminish the essence of the other. And so John is dealing with this, this um, assault, this attack on the dual nature of Christ. That's what he's dealing with directly, but, but indirectly, the, the, the ramification or the consequences, if that was true, would impact the very reason why Christ came. And so Directly, he's dealing with the, new, the dual nature of Christ, but indirectly, all that the dual nature of Christ impacts, namely his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross on our behalf, his perfect life as being accepted by the Father. You see, it was in his humanity that Christ is the second Adam. 
right? Jesus came and did what the first Adam was never able to do. And he did it, listen, not in his deity, but in his humanity. And so it was necessary for Jesus to be fully man. But he was also fully God, which is what made him perfect, which is what made him, again, not being, not carrying the sin nature of Adam and Eve. It's what made him the perfect sacrifice. And you see, if you take away his perfection and he has a sin nature, then him dying on the cross is simply him getting what he deserves. And so these truths are extremely important If he is just God and not man, then he couldn't be the second Adam. He couldn't fulfill the law on our behalf like he did. And so there's consequences to undermining the the nature of Jesus. And John is addressing this uh, throughout his text. And so in short, if, if Jesus isn't God, well, then we're still in our sins. We're still under the wrath of God and This whole Christianity thing is just a farce. And so John is dealing with something in that age that we find ourselves dealing with here as well. The reality of it is that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not, and I know you know that, but that is is what is the accepted practice of the day. He is very God of a very God. He is the only one that declared, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. You see, only God can make that declaration. But you take his deity away, it just becomes an opinion. There was another heresy that John addresses in this letter. It was a heresy called Serentianism. This lie taught that, that Jesus uh, was just a man up until that time that he entered the waters of baptism. And at that moment, the Christ, God the Christ, came upon the man and dwelt with him until such a time that he was heading to the cross. And it was at that point that the spirit of Christ left, the Christ, left Jesus because they said, well, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, couldn't possibly suffer. It's heresy. And the, the reality of it is the suffering of Christ on the cross, the absorption of the wrath of God on our behalf that is the very essence of the atonement. So because of these attacks on the dual nature of Christ, you'll see John using expressions that refer to Christ, um, such as we have looked upon him and we have handled. In other words, we have touched him in, verse, in, in chapter one and verse one. He's, he's highlighting the, the physical nature of Christ. He'll say in chapter four and verse two, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, right? It's the, it's the, it's the acceptance of the incarnation, Christ coming in the flesh. When I talk about the incarnation, what is that? That's Christ becoming man through the woman, born of a woman. Chapter five and verse six makes reference to Jesus. It says, he who came by water and blood. What is that? Those are the two characteristics that are present in the birth, right? Water and blood. And so again, it's referring back to the birth of Christ by Mary, the incarnation. The birth of Christ. 
These phrases use explicit and clear language to describe the incarnation and the truth about Jesus being fully God and fully man without either nature taking away the essence of the other or the fullness of the other. This is very relevant today. In the same way, like it was back in John's day, there is an, there is a, an intentional assault on the deity of Christ in our day today. Because here's the deal. If Jesus is God, then everything that Jesus said is true. And if everything that Jesus said is true, then man is a sinner in need of a savior. And the only way that man can spend eternity in heaven with God is the acceptance of Christ's work on the cross for them. And so people have no problem embracing him as teacher, as prophet, as miracle worker, so long as you don't say that I am in need of a savior. Gnostics also concluded that if God were really truly good, then he couldn't have created a, a material universe. Why, how can a good God create something physically, this universe, materially, that is evil? And so how did they do that? They suggest, here's what they suggested. They suggested a lesser God had created this material universe in which we live. And they taught that this lesser God was the God of the Old Testament, which was different than the God of the New Testament. They couldn't reconcile the, this idea that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were the same way. They perceived the God of the Old Testament as this mean, vindictive God who would destroy people and nations for their disobedience towards them. I mean, examining the God's dealings with mankind, they didn't believe that the, that the God of the Old Testament could possibly be the same as the God of the New Testament. I'm sure you've heard that before. And boy, why do we have this picture of God in the Old Testament that, that deals with sin um, immediately and decisively and strongly? We see him destroy nations and people. We see him strike down people with, with leprosy and all kinds of, of different ailments for, because of their, their disobedience towards him. We see him sw uh, you know, open up the, 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 the ground and swallow up the prophets of Baal, right? We see him turn armies in on themselves. The God of the Old Testament was not someone you wanted to mess with. And then we have this image of God in the New Testament, characterized by the, the person of Jesus Christ, full of grace and, and mercy and forgiveness. This, this Jesus who, who when, the, when the woman who was caught in the act of adultery was thrown at his feet, he did not condemn like the religious leaders wanted to, but then instead he extends grace with the instruction to go and sin no more. We see a God who is, who is patient and long-suffering, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. How do you reconcile that? What happened to God? Did he change? 
Did somebody reason with him, perhaps during that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament where he said, God, you need to really chill out? (laughs) Did God change? Of course not. We know he is immutable. He, He does not change. He does not even carry within himself the ability to change. The God of the New Testament, listen, is just as offended by the sins of humanity as he was in the Old Testament. He has not softened in his view on sin. The difference is not how God dispenses his wrath, but on who God dispenses his wrath. Therein lies the significance of the atonement. In the Old Testament, we see God's wrath directed towards people. But in the New Testament, we see this same God with this same disdain and intolerance for sin, not directing his wrath towards people, but now directing all of his wrath on his son on the cross. Isaiah points to the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53 reminding us that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. But look, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has not changed in his view on sin. He has not diluted his wrath. He has changed the object of his wrath from the people to the person of Christ. And those who embrace the Son will not be under the wrath of God any longer, but under the grace of God. But for those who reject the Son, for those who who do not embrace the Son, there is a day of reckoning coming where this same God will pour out his wrath upon them for all of eternity. And that's why it's so critically important to understand the dual nature of Christ and how he in his humanity and in his, and in his deity became our perfect sacrifice and substitute. And so the purpose of this letter was, was twofold. Obviously, it was to refute the prevailing heresy that was bringing confusion and division. We'll tackle that and see how some of those very same lies under different titles continue throughout our day today. But secondly, it was a, it was a pastoral appeal from the heart of John, this shepherd, this pastor, it was a pastoral, a pastoral appeal, appeal to, to promote true fellowship. Not just gathering together, but true fellowship. The Greek word is, is koinonia, the kind of, of intersecting of Christian lives that results in a greater love for God and a greater love for one another. 
It is when the body of Christ as the people of God come together and fellowship and engage with one another in such a way that the fragrance of Christ is what's left behind and we are left loving one another and loving Jesus all the more. That is koinonia. That is the relationship, the fellowship that we have with one another. And John will address these things John's epistle will draw a a hard line in the sand in saying that the only way that true fellowship with God and one another can possibly exist is by embracing a biblical understanding of just who Jesus is and our obedience to his teaching. The only way that we can have the assurance and the fellowship with God and one another that we can have is by embracing who the scripture says that Jesus is and then as a response to that, it it, it causes us to obey the teachings of Jesus. In fact, John will end this epistle very clearly communicating the purpose of of his writing. What is the purpose of John's writing? He says this in chapter five and verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Look, that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. I love that. You see, we live in a time where, where people are, are very, are very um, indecisive as to whether or not they really believe that they're gonna spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. Can I just tell you that your father wants you to have that sense of assurance? John says, I wrote these things so that you would know deep in your know. You don't have to wonder, you don't have to hope, you don't have to wish, guess, or gamble. John says, I wrote these things that you might know that you have eternal life. You know, too much of Christianity comes to the conclusion by how they feel. Too much of our theology is informed by by bad worship songs and bad teachings and not just the word of God itself. And we need to return to that and making sure that that which we are holding to and believing is coming straight from the word of God. God, your Father, wants you to have an assurance of knowing. I write these things that you would know that you have eternal life. You don't have to wish and hope and stress out, wonder, wondering whether you're gonna spend eternity with God in heaven. Because what that oftentimes leads to is people trying to weigh out the differences, weigh out the goods and the bads in their life and say, hey, do you think you're gonna go to heaven? I don't know, I think I'm a good enough person. You might be a good person, but I can guarantee you're not a good enough person. If it was possible to be a good enough person, Jesus would have never had to come. That you may know that you have eternal life. That's the, that's the title of our series, that you may know but even more than that, it's my, my goal that everyone who hears this in the, next of the cor- in the course of the next number of weeks walks away with that assurance of knowing deep in their knower that they have eternal life. 
And that eternal life is not based on what they've done or what they do or how they give or where they attend, but that assurance is directly connected to the work of Christ in their lives. And what John will teach is the way you'll know you've embraced the work of Christ in your life is by the fruit that is evidenced in the way in which we put in action the teachings of Jesus. As you can imagine, within the church that John was writing to, people were getting concerned. Seeing people they once walked with and worshipped with all of a sudden buying into this lie. And where are they? I'm sure there was a little bit of an insecurity in them that, that made them wonder, I hope, I hope I have what it takes to go the distance. Have you ever thought that? You don't have to raise your hand. The fear of thinking, you know, will I be faithful? Will I do all the things that I'm supposed to do? Will I be obedient? Like, that's not the insecurity that God wants you to walk in. John said, I wrote these things that you would know. But they saw people depart. And John, again, John identifies them and saying, listen, they're never in the faith to begin with. John writes these words to take away his reader's anxiety by, by showing them that what, is really, what it really means to be a Christian. What does it really mean to be a Christian? We will see a, a call to live out what we believe, to love one another as an extension of our love for God. So John will open this letter by providing three important truths that we'll, that we'll see. We'll, these will be woven all throughout this, this letter. Obviously, these are, these are truths that are woven all throughout the New Testament, but John will focus on this and, and use them as a metric even so that those who are listening and those that were reading would know deep in their knower that they have eternal life. I know that was a really long introduction. And its introduction is followed by a very long sentence. First um, John chapter one, verses one through four is a very long sentence in the Greek as well as in the English. And so let's take a look at First John chapter one and verse one. I encourage the first service. You know, I really want to encourage you to, to bring your Bibles to church. I get, whether you use an iPad or, or you know, digital, or, or, but I really want to encourage you. you know, the, 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 we put it up on the screen up there for those who aren't familiar with going through a Bible. Um, but if, you, if it, we really want you to make sure that you're, you're in the Word of God, right? It's important. It's how we grow, right? We, it's like we don't want to highlight the importance of reading your Bible and then encourage everybody not to bring them. Amen? Amen. So if you didn't bring your Bible today, don't feel ashamed. Just, just bring it next week. Um, <laughs> First John chapter 1 and verse 1, John writes this. He says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have, long sentence, right? And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, pause, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Breathe. <laughs> and we are writing these things 
so that our joy may be complete. John will begin to present Christ, the assurance of our hope, the definition, the, the, the face of our hope. The first thing we see here is John presenting the, the reality of Jesus. The reality of Jesus. And as I mentioned before, his, his dual nature, right? God, the God-man is actually the theological term that is used. I really don't like it. It sounds like a superhero, doesn't it? Um, but, but actually, it's referred to, he's referred to as the God-man, 100% man, 100% God. But we see right from the beginning that John says we, 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 that which was from the beginning, right? We see that Jesus' eternal nature is referenced right at the beginning of this epistle. That Jesus' life did not begin in a, in, in, uh, in, in a stable in Bethlehem, but Jesus was, it, it is eternal. That which was from the beginning, again, he also says here, that which was with the Father, and has been made manifest to us, he says in verse two. So we see right from the beginning, John presents the eternal nature of the Son. This is not inconsistent with the way in which John presents Jesus. When John opens up his gospel, he, he opens up in chapter one by saying this, in the beginning was the word. Speaking of Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The Greek, if you, if, you read it, if you read it word for word in the Greek, it actually reads more like this. In the, before the beginning began was the word. Before the beginning began was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and look, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's talking about the eternal nature of the Son. It was Jesus who looked into the darkness and said, let there be light. Nothing was made apart from him making it. And he goes on in verse 14 of that gospel in chapter one, and he says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us. And John says, we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so right from the beginning, John opens up this epistle by presenting the, the nature of Christ the eternal nature of Christ. John says, hey, and not, and not only is he, do, do we see the, the fact that Jesus was present before the beginning began, but he says this in his epistle, he says, we have heard him with our ears. We have seen him with our eyes. We have, we have touched him with our hands. In other words, he says this, put all the Gnostics on notice. God was physically in our midst and he is good because he is God. Look at how many times John references this just in these opening verses, no less than eight times. He says, look, we have heard from him. We have seen him. We have looked upon him. We have touched him with our hands, right? We have seen it. We have seen him made manifest, right? Again, we have seen him. We have heard him. He's highlighting the fact that Jesus, God, was physically in their presence. while remaining 
eternal God. And notice what John says here. He says, look, concerning, he calls it the word of life. What is that? Well, that may be referring to the gospel message, the, the word of life, but let's not forget that, that Jesus is also called the word, as we just saw. We also know that Jesus calls himself the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so this opening not only points us to the gospel, but to the very one in whom the gospel centers upon, the Lord Jesus Christ. That being the very real, physical Jesus, who they had seen, who they had heard, who they had touched, while maintaining his eternal nature as God. John establishes the reality of Jesus' humanity and deity as an assurance that by trusting him, they can know they have eternal life. Hey, listen, if this book could have been disproved, it would have been disproved centuries ago. God's word exposes who his people are and who his people are not. How we feel about it, how we assess it, is, is, is immaterial. It's God's word that informs and instructs. These things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. Secondly, point, John points to the fellowship that we have with God and one another. He makes reference to that in the second part of verse three. He says, look, so I write these things, so that you may have fellowship with, with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He says that you would have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. I love, I love the, the, the leap that he makes there, right? He talks about the fellowship with us, and then he says, and listen, and our fellowship together, collectively, our fellowship is with the Father, with his son, Jesus Christ. Something that we're gonna see woven all throughout this text is the significance of fellowship and specifically Christian community. And how our shared community is an overflow of our fellowship with God himself how our Christian community, our, our commitment to one another, our love for one another, it ought to be an extension, an overflow of our love for God himself. You see, we can't say we have fellowship with God and not fellowship with one another. The church is in union with Christ and in union with one another. You can't, and I, you've heard them, hey, I love God, I just don't like the people, right? Perhaps you've even said that. But I wanna remind you that you're the people too. And the reality of it is that we're all a work in progress. And God puts a whole bunch of imperfect people together in the room with the hopes of the intent of us looking to the perfect one. And as we're walking together, walking towards the perfect one, our imperfections would be chiseled off of, off of one another as we are fellowshipping with one another and the fragrance of Christ is left behind. 
I said earlier, you remember that, that poem, to dwell above with those we love will be grace and glory, but to live below with those we know is quite a different story. <laughs> I want to remind you, you're sitting next to someone just as imperfect as you. Just as much, and you're listening to someone who's just as imperfect as you, a work in progress. But looking unto Jesus, and see what John will highlight, and you'll see this woven all throughout his text, because he said, listen, you can't say I love God and hate my brother. He says the truth is not in you. And so what we'll see here is that our love for God vertically is best expressed by our love for one another horizontally. We can't say we love God vertically and don't love others horizontally. John will weave this truth. I mean, the whole New Testament weaves this truth, and so does the Old Testament, by the way. But we see this. John will, will really move, he will, he will really um, zoom in on this truth. Our love for God vertically ought to be seen in the way in which we also walk with one another. Walk with one another. That's why I say all the time, we, we don't want to just be a church of numbers. We want to be in community with, with one another, fellowship with one another. Listen, you're not going to know everybody. You're not going to be best friends with everybody. It's not the plan. Be nice. But it's here where we ought to connect with one another, where true fellowship, koinonia, takes place and we walk away, iron sharpening iron, but John says this in verse, uh, verse seven, we'll address, I'll, I'll be preaching on this next week, but he says this in verse seven, he says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with Jesus. Is that what he says? No. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Wow. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the fruit of that, what that produces is fellowship with one another. You see, it's the heart of God that you and I are in fellowship with one another. And to the degree that I'm walking in the truth and walking in the light as Christ is in the light, it's going to draw me to the heart of God and the heart of God is on his people. And he says, in the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. And so we see the, the fellowship that we ought to have with one another is an extension of our fellowship with God. And so in this opening, we see the reality of Jesus. We see the fellowship with God and one another. And then lastly, John points out one of the purposes of his writing was that their joy may be complete. Some translations say that their joy may be full. He says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I think complete is a better um, word there than full because it, it, it gives the connotation of, of maturity, of wholeness, of development, right? We are, we are right? We, we're not what we were, right? Thankfully, but I'm not where I want to be. I want to I continue to be growing, right? There's this process of maturity, this process of growing, and what he says, we're writing these things that are, so that our joy may be, mature, may be complete or, or mature. And John is pointing out that to the degree that they are walking in fellowship with God is the degree that they will be walking in fellowship with one another, 
And when that happens, John says our joy is complete. When we're walking in community, the way God designed for us to walk in, it's a little taste of heaven on this side of earth. And the health of that connections are made and relationships are formed. We're able to meet the needs of one another, challenge one another, spur one another on to greater growth and maturity. And that kind of joy comes from biblical fellowship. That's the context in the opening of John's epistle. That's the audience, that's the subjects that he is addressing. And next week as we we get more into the content, it helps us to understand why it's so important to put in motion a healthy embracing of who Jesus is that's followed up with a biblical response of obedience and living that communicates our acceptance of him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that as we are at the very beginning of this journey together, I pray that uh, you would prepare our hearts, equip our hearts, teach our hearts, Lord, in ways that I never could even try. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make the truth of your word alive and active in the hearts of your people. And that, God, as we, as we learn what you have to say, I pray that it would be applied to our lives so that our joy and, Lord, your joy in us might be complete. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.